These groups are not necessarily strong themselves. They prey on weak states. And so the weaker the state in a Muslim-majority country, the more likely these groups are to exist. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. My guest today, Peter Bergen, is one of the world's foremost experts on global jihadist movements like the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda. He is a journalist who's covered this beat for decades, including the first television interview with Osama bin Laden in 1997. He's the author of numerous books and now has a podcast called In the Room. I have been following Peter Bergen's work for a long time. It was probably 20 years ago this week, in fact, that my first job out of college was as his research assistant at the New America Foundation. Needless to say, that was really interesting work for a 22-year-old aspiring foreign policy journalist. So I wanted to speak with Peter Bergen again today to get his analysis of where Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State stand. Specifically, how has the Taliban takeover Afghanistan impacted these global jihadist movements? And separately, why has the Western Sahel region become the geographical base of so many Al-Qaeda and Islamic State splinter groups? We discuss those questions and many more in detail, but kick off with a plug of Peter Bergen's new podcast. A few quick notes before we start. First, if you're new to the show, welcome. Global Dispatches is the longest-running independent international affairs podcast, We've been publishing two episodes a week, every week for the last 10 years. Visit globaldispatches.org to view our full archive, learn more about what we do, and get on our email list. You can also use the contact button on globaldispatches.org to get in touch with me. Also, if you are listening to me right now on Spotify, do me and yourself a favor, and in addition to the follow button, which you've probably already selected, tap that little bell icon. That will serve you a notification when new episodes are released each week. And if the topic interests you, you can click through and have a listen. Similarly, on Apple Podcasts, be sure to hit the follow button and enable automatic downloads to get served the latest episodes as soon as they're released. Apple makes this a fairly low commitment. If you don't actually listen to a few new episodes in a row, Apple will automatically disable automatic downloads. So go ahead and make sure those are enabled. 
And talking about new and future episodes, here's what we're working on in Disclosure. This is subject to change because at time of recording, the interviews have been scheduled but not actually conducted. But all goes according to plan. The next episode will take a look at the fascinating presidential election results in Guatemala, in which a center-left anti-corruption crusader won a landslide victory. Bernardo Aravalo is a rather prominent sociologist who at one point turned down an academic career at Harvard. Now he's the president of Guatemala. That just seems like a really interesting story. Another episode we are working on is the uncertain fate of PEPFAR, which is the highly successful U.S. foreign aid program to combat HIV and AIDS. PEPFAR was designed by the George W. Bush administration and at one point championed by Republicans, but domestic politics have shifted since then, and now Republican support for PEPFAR is wavering. We'll explore the history of the program and what this all means for the global fight against HIV and AIDS. So now here is my conversation with Peter Bergen, journalist and now host of the new podcast, In the Room. First, Peter, congrats on the new podcast. I would imagine we share a similar kind of audience. Can you tell us a little bit about your new show? Well, it's called In the Room. And why In the Room? Because we're trying to get as in the room as possible with the various episodes, whether that's we just did two shows on Afghanistan. We talked to the former Afghan National Security Advisor. We talked to the top U.S. officials working on Afghanistan, trying to get a better sense of how the withdrawal deal with the Taliban was constructed and how it led to what we now know was a pretty disastrous outcome predicted by some, including myself. I was always skeptical of the idea that the Taliban were going to moderate once they came to power. It's a kind of classic case of mirror imaging where you just assume that everybody else in the world thinks like you do, which is not the case. The Taliban didn't fight for two decades to kind of install a Swedish democracy in Afghanistan. And unfortunately, they are clearly not doing that. So in the room, we have a great executive producer, Alison Craiglow, who was the executive producer of Freakonomics for many years, which is obviously a very successful show. And then we have a very strong team of senior producers and associate producers. And we're putting out a weekly show. It's typically not just one person being interviewed, but often multiple voices. So they're like many audio documentaries. We have a great sound designer. Yeah, it sounds good. I, I, I really enjoyed listening to your pilot episode. I would encourage everyone to check it out. It's interesting. Yeah, I started my life working in TV documentaries, and audio documentaries are not dissimilar. A little less hassle to put together, <laughs> but still complicated to script and edit and make it really sing. Well, I started my professional life working for you as a research assistant at the New America Foundation 20 years ago. So I've been following your work, obviously, for many years. And I wanted to focus our conversation today on the current state of play of global jihadist movements, specifically Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. So to sort of maybe like set the scene and kick off our conversation, I would be interested in having you explain how, if at all, Al-Qaeda changed following the death of bin Laden in 2011. How did that impact the organization and its operations? Well, I mean, it wasn't a good thing for them. And bin Laden was a very effective leader of Al-Qaeda. Ayman al-Zawari, his successor, was killed in a U.S. drone strike in July of 2022, 
was a fairly incompetent leader and was never able to really resuscitate al-Qaeda in a meaningful sense. Obviously, you mentioned ISIS. ISIS itself is an offshoot of al-Qaeda in Iraq, which is an offshoot of al-Qaeda. So the group certainly continued, but under different management, more effective management than Ayman al-Zawari. And how is al-Qaeda doing today? You know, it's, it's not doing particularly well compared to, where to say, where it was 20 years ago. That said, the Taliban are providing a very hospitable environment for al-Qaeda right now. The UN has a fairly regular series of reports on al-Qaeda, ISIS, and the Taliban. There's a monitoring cell inside the UN. I think they're some of the most useful reports that are being written. They're based on information derived from member states. They tend to be very rich in detail. And so the most recent report, which came out just within the last month or so, said a number of very interesting things about al-Qaeda and its relationship with the Taliban. One, that there are 400 members of al-Qaeda living in Afghanistan. Two, that some of those members of al-Qaeda have received appointments inside the Taliban administration. Three, members of al-Qaeda are deriving welfare payments, quote-unquote, from the Taliban in Afghanistan. So the fact that Ayman al-Zawari was living in Kabul, the capital of Afghanistan, with the knowledge of senior Taliban and Haqqani network figures, according to senior Biden administration officials, speaks for itself. So al-Qaeda has got a pretty good situation in Afghanistan right now. According to the UN, its quote-unquote external operations capability is improving, which means, you know, a fancy way of saying their ability to carry out terrorist attacks outside Afghanistan. And, you know, it's a matter of time that they regroup. And it's not just al-Qaeda, of course, according to the United Nations, there are 20 terrorist groups of various kinds in Afghanistan. They've got a very sympathetic environment. The Taliban are not going to turn against these groups, except with the case of ISIS-K, which is the ISIS affiliate, which is definitely in some kind of conflict with the Taliban in Afghanistan. So you know, what's interesting to me, Mark, is al-Qaeda hasn't appointed a new leader for over a year, at least publicly. We obviously don't really know why that's the case. The new leader is likely to be a guy called Saif al-Adil, who has been living in Iran for some period of time. He is a former Egyptian special forces officer. He's been part of al-Qaeda from the beginning. He's a potentially relatively effective leader. They may not want to appoint him if he's in Afghanistan publicly, because that would not exactly fit with the narrative that the Taliban has separated itself from al-Qaeda. They may not want to appoint him if he's in Iran, because that might be problematic for the Iranians. We don't really know if he's in Iran or in Afghanistan, and we don't really know if indeed he is the new leader of al-Qaeda, but my guess is, is he is. But the fact that they haven't publicly acknowledged a new leader, I think, shows weakness as well. But that said, the Taliban is really well armed right now. They have, according to the UN, $8.5 billion of military equipment that was left behind when the US military went to the exits. That's larger than the defense budgets of most European countries. They are heavily armed. They have 70,000 armored vehicles, according to the UN. They have more than 100 helicopters, unlimited ammunition, and also doesn't face any significant internal opposition. I'm sure there are plenty of people who don't like the Taliban, but there's no armed opposition that was somewhat effective in the pre-9-11 era when the Taliban controlled Afghanistan. So they're going to be there for quite a, some period of time. I think that helps groups like al-Qaeda and other jihadist groups because you know, for them, this is a jihadist movement that is now controlling a country. The jihadist movement is very excited about that. The Taliban are excited about it. 
I don't think the Taliban necessarily will rule in Afghanistan forever because sort of embedded in their DNA, they're going to start making certain kinds of mistakes. They may allow some kind of attack plotted in Afghanistan to fester and maybe an attack against an American target in South Asia. They're going to allow maybe Europeans to come to get training with these groups. There could be an attack against an Indian target by Lashkar-e-Taiba, which is an anti-Indian group that also has presence in Afghanistan. There's a bunch of things that could happen. They could also engage in anti-Shia attacks, which they certainly did when they the last time they were in power. So they will make some mistakes. And clearly, they're a very incompetent group of people in terms of they have really no program for governance in any kind of conventional sense. But they are well-armed. They don't face any real internal opposition of any strength, and they will be there for some period of time. Is it fair to say that, you know, while the Taliban, for the reasons you described, are providing like haven to jihadist groups and Al Qaeda in particular, that sort of ideologically they're not totally aligned to the extent that the Taliban is maybe more of like a nationalist movement that they don't seek to expand their control, say, all over the world or to have this you know, huge caliphate beyond, you know, say, Afghanistan versus al-Qaeda, which has this kind of global outlook. That was certainly the case before 9-11, which didn't prevent al-Qaeda from carrying out the 9-11 attacks. So, I mean, there's a slight caveat. I don't disagree with you. The Taliban are basically a nationalist jihadist group, but they don't see the border as that between Afghanistan and Pakistan as a border that exists. So the Pakistani Taliban, which has killed literally tens of thousands of Pakistanis, is to a large degree headquartered in Afghanistan now, which poses a bit of a policy dilemma for the Pakistani military, which is supportive of the Afghan Taliban, but is also being attacked by the Pakistani Taliban, which is based in Afghanistan. And there's not much distinction really between the Pakistani Taliban and the Afghan Taliban. The the Afghan Taliban is not going to go after the Pakistani Taliban on its soil. So the nationalist aspect of the Taliban doesn't just exist in the Afghan context. It also, they have a view about Pakistan, which is that the enemies of the Pakistani state. That said, there are a bunch of Islamist terrorist groups in Afghanistan historically that the Taliban have been aligned with, whether it's Lashkar-e-Taiba, which is an anti-Indian group, whether it's the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, which is trying to oppose the Uzbek government, whether it's groups, you know, it's got a Uyghur terrorist groups that are interested in sort of attacking the Chinese state, Al-Qaeda itself, they're certainly hosting a not insignificant ISIS affiliate, which they're sort of in conflict with right now. But the fact is, is that Taliban, I think you're absolutely right about their worldview, but that doesn't mean that they're going to like prevent jihadist groups on their soil from carrying out the jihad around the world, wherever those jihadist groups want to do it. So I wanted to ask you about the current trajectory of the Islamic State. I mean, we've seen a number of decapitation strikes since the killing of al-Baghdadi in 2019. And I think, was it just like a few weeks ago, right? In the beginning of August, the Islamic State confirmed that its most recently killed leader was replaced. Yeah. How have these strikes impacted the you know structure or even the operations of the Islamic State since like the heights of their power when they controlled large swaths of Syria and Iraq a decade ago. 
Yeah. So, you know, in 2014, 2015, they controlled territory the size of the United Kingdom and population the size of Bulgaria. So, I mean, that was a pretty big deal. And Mark, I think one of the sort of not as well heralded as perhaps it should be heralded with relatively limited U.S. troops on the ground and a completely revamped Iraqi counterterrorism service, in particular its Golden Division, which is the most effective part of the Iraqi military. They were rolled back in Iraq, and they were rolled back in Syria with help of the Syrian Defense Forces, which is sort of a Kurdish proxy force that the United States allied itself with. And together with American air power, American special forces, and an advisor and assist mission, that geographical caliphate was destroyed. And I think that cannot be underestimated in terms of the importance of what a blow it gave to ISIS. I mean, the reason that you saw 40,000 Muslims from around the Muslim world, including hundreds of Americans who at least attempted to try and join ISIS in Iraq and Syria. If you look at the graph of like the number of foreign fighters coming into Iraq and Syria between, say, 2015 and uh, 2017, when ISIS was beginning to really lose serious ground, you know, suddenly the foreign fighter flow into ISIS on the ground in Iraq and Syria slowed to close to zero because no one wanted to join the losing team. And so the fact that ISIS had a geographical caliphate, which they were really running according to their own kind of twisted precepts, that was very attractive to quite a number of foreign fighters, a lot of whom were the most radical ISIS members, right? I mean, Jihadi John, who was responsible for the deaths of American journalists and aid workers and others, you know, came from the UK. And so that's all gone, which isn't to say, of course, that ISIS is completely out of business. You know, you mentioned this recent confirmation of some ISIS leader who's been killed. There have been a lot of these, so much so that it's hard to keep track of how many leaders have been killed. You know, I mean, obviously, the US continues a counterterrorism mission in Iraq. Interestingly, there are as many US troops in Iraq, around 2,500, as there were in Afghanistan when Biden pulled the plug there. And they're there with you know Iraqi government permission, and they're there to help the Iraqi counterterrorism service. They're not on the front lines. And of course, the United States also has 900 troops roughly in Syria, which also continues in the anti-ISIS mission. So ISIS has still got some lingering pockets in these countries. They also have this camp with about 60,000, mostly women and children who are associated with ISIS, which very few countries are willing to take back anybody from this camp, the Al-Hol camp it's called. And that's probably, you know, generating a new generation of sort of ISIS recruits because it's stuff full of ISIS true believers. But, you know, that said, the campaign to destroy the geographical caliphate, I think, was A, successful, B, important. So while like the geographical caliphate of the Islamic State was destroyed, as you said, in this successful operation, it's, you know, it's, it's no longer has that stronghold. It does seem in recent years that like the locus of global jihadi movements seem to have shifted towards Africa in general and like the Western Sahel in particular, Burkina Faso, Niger, Mali, and then there's Al-Shabaab in in Somalia, which is, uh, I take it a, a bit separate. But how do you explain the sort of seeming emergence of these groups in that region where, you know, at the moment they seem to be just like gaining strength, whereas these movements in other parts of the world in the Middle East seem to be losing strength. 
Well, I mean, it's a very good question. I would like zoom out a little bit and say, you know, whatever the flavor of these jihadist groups, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, or whatever name, the Al-Shabaab, or whatever the group is named in a particular country, these groups are not necessarily strong themselves. They prey on weak states. And so the weaker the state in a Muslim-majority country, the more likely these groups are to exist. And I think, you know, when you have a relatively strong Muslim state uh, like Saudi Arabia, which had a major problem with al-Qaeda in 2004 to 2005, the Saudis fought a pretty successful, almost like a counterinsurgency campaign against al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, which is really a non-issue now in, in Saudi Arabia. And much of those remnants of that moved into neighboring Yemen. So I think that the overall point when you've got a weak state like Somalia, well, al-Shabaab is going to do okay. And in fact, al-Shabaab has waxed and waned quite a lot over the years in Somalia. And it's interesting, the Biden administration seems to be the one area where they're kind of launching a relatively robust counterterrorism campaign is in Somalia, outside of the kind of counter-ISIS campaign. If you look at what used to be the drone war in Pakistan, which was really amped up by President Obama, basically ceased under President Trump and has continued to cease under President Biden. There have been, as far as we can tell at New America, where I also work, and we track these things pretty carefully, there'd be no drone strikes in Pakistan since 2018. That is not the case in Somalia, where there have been plenty of drone strikes and also ground force operations against al-Shabaab. But the broader point is, is that weak states are hospitable to these groups. I think sometimes you know these groups put you on a payroll and in countries with very limited job opportunities. This is a job that gives you you know kind of power and maybe some money. And I think in the specific cases of Niger, the coup there is sort of doesn't hurt these groups and may help them. In Mali, the, you know the French pulled out. That doesn't hurt these groups either. If there is a power vacuum, that helps these kinds of groups. And I don't claim to have any expertise on the Sahel or the details of these groups. I, like you, um, I find it surprising that these groups have done relatively well in places like Nigeria and Niger and Mali. Of course, al-Qaeda has had an affiliate in Africa for many years that's been involved in you know, kidnapping Westerners often for really pretty nice sums of money, which has kind of kept them afloat. The US and Britain don't pay ransoms. That's not the case for the French and the Italians and other European countries. So there has been a jihadist presence in West Africa for a long time, but it seems, as, just as you point out, it seems to be growing. And it seems to be the area of the world where we're actually doing the best. And you know, I don't have the full answer about why that's the case. I think it's a, definitely worth exploring, You know, trying to dig deeper into it. I mean, if you speak with like Sahel security experts and, you know, I've had them on the show before, I mean, they'll often point to the ability of these groups to exploit like local grievances, sometimes ethnic, sometimes just like grievances because the areas in which they're able to recruit the best are farthest from the centers of power in the countries. They kind of do well on the peripheries in these countries, which tend to be like neglected by the state the most. And so, you know, you wonder if like the remedy then is to undertake development activities, not necessarily like drone strikes or tip of the spear operations, but rather economic development, social development, those kinds of efforts to reduce the attractiveness of these organizations. Do you put like credence in that? Well, my guess is that 
these countries need a lot of development writ large, and that's a very expensive proposition. But it, part of it is also just a, a rule of law aspect, because I, I think I'm sure you're right about where the writ of the government is very low, these groups are going to function pretty well. So it's about extending the writ of the government, I would say, even more than, I mean, you can't do development if you don't have security. So the security has to precede the development. And I think that these states, like, do they have the capacity to manage you know, remote parts of their country and keep law and order? The answer is probably not. So if that's really the case, then that would point to advise and assist missions by U.S. Special Operations, Special Forces, which, uh, you know, very small footprint, doesn't have to be a large number of people. I mean, a case that I am very interested in, Abu Sayyaf, which you may recall was a relatively successful al-Qaeda affiliate in the Philippines, it's really taken a big hit. And it's taken a big hit because the Philippine military, with assistance from U.S. Special Forces, had quite a success against Abu Sayyaf, which was routinely kidnapping Americans, amongst other things. So that model, you know, there's no political appetite, obviously, in the United States for large-scale military interventions anywhere, and they're not really that necessary and often. I think a relatively small special forces mission, if the country is willing to accept U.S. special forces, can be quite successful. So lastly, in the coming months or years even, are there any indicators you'll be looking towards that will suggest to you how like global jihadist movements or the threat from global jihadist groups like al-Qaeda or the Islamic State may evolve? You know, the interesting question here, I think, I mean, really zooming out, there's a UCLA academic called David Rappaport, who shortly after 9-11 said that there were basically had been four waves of terrorism. He said each of these waves tended to burn themselves out after a generation. So the first wave was the anarchist wave. And the anarchists had some successes. They killed President McKinley, an American president. But anarchism, obviously, by definition, doesn't have much of a program. And it sort of just died out of its own sort of lack of direction. The next wave was the anti-colonial wave, which burned itself out because it was somewhat successful. So whether it was against the French in Algeria or the British in Ireland, there was these terrorist groups that were really nationalist and anti-colonialist. They burned themselves out eventually or turned into normal politicians because they had some successes. Then you had the Marxist wave, which kind of more or less collapsed with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Brigadi Rossi, the Bardo Meinhof gang, the you know, Japanese Red Army, all these groups basically disappeared with the collapse of the Soviet Union. And now you're in the religious wave. Now, the religious wave has been going on arguably since 1979. You have the rise of Khomeini, and then you have Hezbollah in Lebanon. You also have the jihadi Sunni wave led by bin Laden and al-Qaeda. And the question is, will this burn itself out like the other waves of ideological terrorism that preceded it? My answer to that is, I think that you can't really abolish God. You can abolish the Soviet Union. Anarchism doesn't have much uh, to offer. And the anti-colonial wave of terrorists, they largely succeeded in their aims of getting kind of colonial powers out of particular countries. So I think this wave is going to carry on for some period of time because look at actually where we are today, where you have a highly ideological Shia regime in Iran that not only controls Iran, it also is highly influential in Iraq, highly influential in Syria. Hezbollah is the de facto government and an arm of the Iranian government in Lebanon and also has an important role in Yemen. So the Iranian sort of radical movement stretches from Yemen in the south, 1,500 miles north, to Lebanon in the north. 
And then you have, you know, the Taliban have just won their war in Afghanistan. What, two years ago, on August 15th, they took over Kabul. So this religious wave is not done. And I think the ideology lives on if Al-Qaeda itself is, you know, relatively weak, if ISIS has suffered some pretty serious defeats, you know, the ideology lives on. And it can pop up in places like you mentioned in Niger or Nigeria or Mali in new and unexpected forms. So I just think that's the future we face. Then the question is, you know, to what extent is it an American national security problem? And the answer is, relatively speaking, you know, the United States has done a pretty good job in suppressing, you know, we basically have relatively good offensive capabilities, whether it's U.S. special operations or drone strikes. And then we have pretty good defensive capabilities. We have a whole bunch of tools that didn't exist before 9-11. So National Counterterrorism Center, TSA, Department of Homeland Security, Joint Terrorism Task Forces that have sort of tripled in number since 9-11. A lot of resources applied to this. And it turns out, of course, that the real threat is in the United States itself. It's not coming from outside. Whether that's people being radicalized by ISIS propaganda online, who are American citizens already here, or right-wing domestic extremism, which is obviously the biggest issue right now and has been for years. And the policy-making questions around Americans who would become terrorists is complicated because if you join a foreign terrorist organization by giving money or by providing your services or you know getting training, that's a crime. It's not a crime to be sympathetic to the Proud Boys or, or be part of the Proud Boys. It's obviously a crime to be part of a criminal act the Proud Boys engage in. But because of the First Amendment, it's not a crime to be a part of these groups. It is a crime to be part of ISIS in this country. If you are giving it money, if you're donating your own services or other forms of material support. So the policymaking questions around how you deal with domestic terrorism are, are harder than if you're dealing with foreign terrorist organizations where there's much more statutes that help law enforcement deal with the issue of joining or supporting a foreign terrorist organization, which is a long-winded way of saying that clearly the issue today is domestic right-wing extremism. And you know, dealing with that from a legal point of view is, is harder than dealing with somebody who is joining al-Qaeda or supporting ISIS. And um, you know, the good thing about the January 6th, the only good thing you can say is a thousand arrests or so, many of those people I saw today, you know, there may be sentences of up to 30 years for some of the Proud Boys on the sedition charges. That has a pretty big demonstration effect. I thought it was fascinating, Mark, that when Trump was indicted variously in Miami and New York and Washington, despite his public statements about you know how wrong this all was, very few people showed up to uh, protest because they all saw what happened on January 6th, which is anybody involved in illegal activities on that day is uh, facing you know potentially some pretty serious jail time. And hopefully that demonstration effect will continue. Thank you so much for your time and congrats again on the new podcast. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for listening to Global Dispatches. The show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg. It is edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure to follow the show and enable automatic downloads to get new episodes as soon as they're released. On Spotify, tap the bell icon to get a notification when we publish new episodes. And of course, please visit globaldispatches.org to get on our free mailing list, get in touch with me, and access our full archive. Thank you.